Hi. I think I'm supposed to dismiss the kids now, is that right? I think Lloyd was supposed to dismiss them. Grades four to six can, can go. Uh, well, thank you so much for that uh, warm welcome. I've got to say that this, the staff this week have just been unbelievable. What a wonderful staff you have. They have you had gift, gift baskets waiting for me and cards written and uh, all my favorite junk food. <laughs> so it was really nice. Before I preach, I just want to acknowledge a couple things. And uh, I've already said this to your leadership team at a nice little get-together we had, but uh, you may know that the word pastor just means shepherd. And uh, though you've been without a lead pastor for these number of months, by all accounts, um, you have not gone unshepherded during this time. Uh, and by all accounts, you have been shepherded well, uh, both by the staff and I, I would say the, the church council. So I just wanted to acknowledge that labor in the Lord and to just thank your leaders for all the work that they have, they have done. And of course, that's a good thing in and of itself, but it, it makes for a soft landing for me, which I'm very, very grateful for. And the second thing is, and, and Lloyd re referenced this in his prayer, is that uh, I understand that you've been through a bit of a time uh, as a church, and um, I, I just want to remind you that Jesus has been shepherding you through this time, that you haven't gone unshepherded because Jesus is our good shepherd, and he is the one who... Uh, Leaves, leaves the 99 and seeks for the one, and he's the one who, who binds up the lame and heals, heals them, and he's the one who lays down his life for the sheep. And I just want to say uh, right up front that my understanding of my job here is to just point us to him, point us to the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, which is a good segue to our sermon uh, as you will have noted from today's reading, I'll be preaching on the parable of the ten virgins from Matthew 25. And you might say, wow, that's random. Uh, of all the texts that you could choose, like why didn't you choose John 3 or Romans 8 or something like that? Why would you choose Matthew chapter 5? Well, I'm accustomed to preaching according to the lectionary, which is just a big word that means a schedule of readings that the church gives us for every Sunday of the year. And for today, the church gives us this reading from Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the ten virgins. And I actually think that this reading is a perfect choice for this Sunday because it puts the events of today in the right context. You've been preparing for the arrival of a new lead pastor or rector, but not lead rector. By the way, it's got to be one or the other. But you've been preparing for the arrival of a new lead pastor, and that's good, and it's important, and hopefully it's been a little bit exciting, but really, it's only ultimately important insofar as it helps St. Peter's prepare for the arrival of the great pastor, the shepherd and overseer of our souls, our Lord Jesus Christ. In the Christian worldview, history is not cyclical, it's not random, 
even though sometimes it feels like it is. Rather, it's tending towards an event. And that event is known in Scripture by a number of names, but the day of the Lord, the coming of the Lord, the appearing of the Lord, the revealing of the Lord. And in fact, though we're still in the time after Pentecost, sometimes called ordinary time, and I see that you've got your nice green hangings here for ordinary time, very nice. Does someone in this church make those hangings? Very nice. Very nice. Love them. So we're still in ordinary time, but actually these last Sundays in ordinary time, as we approach Christ the King and as we approach Advent, are sometimes nicknamed Kingdom Tide, because all the readings point to Christ coming again and our need to be ready. So our reading today has this message, and it's a simple message in two parts. Number one, though he seems to be, as our text says, a long time in coming, Jesus is coming. That's, that's the main point. And the second one is that he's calling us to be ready for when he comes. Or in Christ's own interpretive words, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So that's the basic message of the parable. But I think we need to know a little bit about first century Jewish culture to really get a little bit more, glean a little bit more from this parable. Because for us living 2,000 years after Christ in Vancouver, a story about virgins and oil lamps doesn't necessarily activate too many epiphanies for us, right? It's a little bit distant from our uh, experience. So let me give a crack at a paraphrase here. And I use paraphrase very, very loosely. But, but here we go. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like two baristas who had to work the closing shift at J.J. Bean. That's what I know. One barista was foolish and the other was wise. For when the manager left, the foolish sat on the counter and scrolled through their phone. But the wise began, began sweeping and mopping the floor. At the end of the night, the manager returned to check on the clothes. And the foolish said to the wise, give me your mop so I may look busy to the, to the manager. But the wise said, I will finish mopping. You go do your duties. While the foolish was scrambling to find something to do, the manager returned and gave the hardworking barista a bonus and an invitation to the staff Christmas party. <laughs> Afterward, the other barista came and asked the manager, boss, boss, invite me to the party also. But the manager answered, truly, I say to you, you're fired. <laughs> Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. That makes sense to us. I was a closer at Commercial Drive, so I know about this. But perhaps because we get that, it makes us realize that we don't really get the story about the virgins, and we need a little bit of help. <laughs> okay, so let me, let me try, and I know there's a bunch of Regent students in here, so they're going to nail me on my whatever, my first century Jewish stuff. But I'm going to try, guys, okay? I'm going to try. So here's a little background. When a man wanted to marry, or when his father wanted him to marry, in the first century Jewish culture, the first step would be for him to leave his father's house in order to approach the intended bride and her father with, with a marriage contract. Included in this contract was what was called 
the bride price. Now, I know this, this is going to trigger a lot of kind of, um, you know, patriarchy-type alarms for you. But, but actually, the fulfillment of this is quite beautiful. So just, just stick with me here. The bride price was a sum of money to be paid to the father of the bride. If the proposal was accepted, the couple was officially betrothed, and a divorce was required to separate them. You'll remember that this was the case with Mary and Joseph, right? They were betrothed, and a divorce was required to separate them, but they weren't actually married. They weren't living yet, but they, but they were betrothed. After the betrothal, the, the, the groom would take his leave, saying to the bride, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. He would then often go back into his father's house and prepare a room, a place to live for the couple. And the groom could be gone for some time. He could be gone for up to a year. But when the room was finally prepared, the bridegroom would make a grand procession with his entourage and this joyful procession to collect his bride. And this usually happened at night. Meanwhile, the bride and her bridesmaids, or the virgins, uh, have been making ready for the arrival of the groom. And so what they needed was uh, lamps to make sure they had light for the procession and to make ready for all the other things, and oil to keep the procession lit through the dark of night back to the wedding chamber. When the groom and his friends drew near to the bride's house, they would give a cry Sometimes they would blow a horn to announce their arrival. We're here. The, the groom has arrived. The bridegroom has arrived. And the wedding party would then process with lamps burning back to the wedding chamber where all would joyfully celebrate in the marriage feast or the wedding banquet. So that's a little bit of cultural background for you. And that's going to actually come into play, importantly, at the end of the sermon. But what I want to do is to, to kind of ask four questions about our text today. Number one. To whom is this parable addressed? Number two, what does the oil represent in the parable? Number three, what is this text saying to us at St. Peter's? And number four, where's the gospel in all of this? Because it does seem like a bit of a severe reading, doesn't it? So the first question, to whom is this parable addressed? It seems to me that this parable is offered to those who are visibly a part of the community of faith. All ten virgins, or bridesmaids, are in the wedding party. In fact, they've even been chosen or elected by the bride and the groom. Some parables have to do with those on the outside, you know, those on the highway, in the highways, in the byways, um, those who are not part of the visible family of faith, but need to be and need to come in, right? But I think this parable is directed to those on the inside, that is, to professing Christians. The problem with the foolish virgins is that though they are visibly in the wedding party, they're really bridesmaids in name only. Outwardly, they look the part of the bridesmaid. They've got their dresses on. They've got their lamps out for the picture, right? But they're, they're not really doing the work of a, of a bridesmaid. They were unprepared because they had no oil. They had the external apparatus without the internal contents. They were outwardly religious without internal transformation. They produced no fire because they had no fuel. So I think this parable is 
primarily addressing the hypocrisy of professing believers. And it seems to me, and this is always a very convicting thought to me, that if we had to pick one thing that made Jesus really mad during his earthly ministry, it was probably the hypocrisy of the so-called religious. Just a few chapters earlier in Matthew's gospel, Jesus really goes to town on the scribes and the Pharisees. Listen to what he says. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Man, the... Those words always sting a little bit because I'm a self-professed orthodox teacher of God's word. I'm the modern equivalent of the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. So they're tough words from Jesus. But stick with me because the good news is coming. So who is this parable addressed to? Who's it addressed to? Right, believers. Okay, you're tracking. Good, good. People on the inside, believers, professing believers. And, and that, that, that means most of us here, and by the way, if you're not a Christian and you're here, and you're here, we're so glad that you're here, and you get to be a little fly on the wall of a little family talk we're having right now. So secondly, second question, what does the oil represent? Well, it might not represent anything specific. There's not a one-to-one -one correlation with everything in every parable, so it might just be part of the furniture of the parable, but... In the scriptures, oil often serves a symbolic or sacramental purpose. Throughout the scriptures, anointing with oil is an action associated with the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Oil is used to anoint prophets and priests and kings who are subsequently filled with the Spirit that they might fulfill their vocation. In the life of the church, this application of oil is extended to all believers, not just prophets, priests, and kings. Uh, and by the way, St. Peter says, we are a holy nation, a royal priesthood. All of us in, in Christ's body are priests and kings. So in the church today, we still use oil when we ask the Spirit to come upon us or to equip us with some king, for some kingdom work. It's customary to be anointed at baptism, at confirmation, at ordination. And following the instruction of St. James, when we're sick, in the New Testament, James says when we're sick, we're to call the elders, or the presbyters, or the priests, or the pastors, all the same thing. We're to call them, and they're to visit us, and, and do what? Anoint us with oil. So oil is not only an old covenant thing, it's also a new covenant thing. Listen to the words of the prayer book. When the priest anoints the sick... And sick meaning in mind, body, or spirit. Listen to what the priest says. As you are outwardly anointed by this holy oil, so may our Heavenly Father grant you the inward anointing of the Holy Spirit. So oil is a potent symbol in the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, of the activity of the Spirit in us. So for our parable, some Christian writers have suggested that the oil represents the presence and activity of the Spirit in the wise virgins, which enables them 
to light their lamps. That is, to do their work, the work that they're called to do. Again, the foolish virgins didn't have the oil. They only had the external vessel. When the bridegroom returned, the wise virgins went to the wedding feast, but the foolish virgins were left out in the dark, and their lamps were useless. They were just the external apparatus without the thing that made it come to life, to light on fire. So that's one note. A couple other notes about the oil. In this parable, there's a connection between having the oil, possibly the spirit, and knowing the bridegroom. There's an intimate connection between having the oil and knowing the bridegroom, Christ. When the foolish virgins who didn't have the oil asked to be let into the banquet, the bridegroom says these very difficult words, truly I tell you, I don't know you. The ones who were known by and knew the bridegroom were the ones who had the oil. The oil of the Spirit is the means of knowing Christ the bridegroom now. So that when, we, when he comes, he knows us and we know him and we're prepared. My final note about the oil is that it, in this parable is that it can't be lent out or borrowed or traded. Each lamp must contain oil of its own. When the foolish ask the wise for some of their oil, they respond, go to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. Go to the source. This may be a particularly poignant point for those of us who grew up as Christians in Christian homes, like I did. My folks are sitting right there, down there right now. My dad is an Alliance pastor. So I grew up initially receiving their oil. But there comes a time, and confirmation next week is, is, is the outward sign of this, where people in our community are going are to take the oil for themselves, receive their own oil in their own lamp. That's really what confirmation is all about. Very exciting. Very exciting. Go to the source. So we can't know the bridegroom and enter the feast based on our parents' oil or our priest's oil or anyone else's oil. Earlier on in Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist warned those who were trusting in their holy heritage. Again, tough words. He said, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. That is uh, an internal change prompted by the Spirit. And do not think you can say to yourselves, I, we have Abraham as our father. We're Anglicans. We have apostolic succession. We have bishops. No, no, no. Phil would like that one. What, is John the what, what does John the Baptist say? I tell you, I can raise up stones in apostolic succession. Right? I can raise up stones who are sons of Abraham. No, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. That is, the oil that's been poured into your heart and that lights the lamp. So what does the oil represent? It may represent the presence of the Spirit by whom we know the bridegroom, by whom we're able to light our lamps, that is, to carry out our calling as Christians and so enter into the joy of the wedding banquet. So what is this text saying to us at St. Peter's? First answer is, I don't know, because it's my first Sunday. <laughs> But I'll take a crack. <laughs> Certainly, this parable is about being prepared for the coming of the Lord. But you know, I think sometimes 
when we think about the return of the Lord, if we think about the return of the Lord, we may get anxious and think, man, I really need to get my act together. Uh, I'm not trying hard enough as a Christian. I'm not praying enough. I'm not giving enough. I'm not pursuing justice enough. I'm really struggling with X, Y, and Z. Jesus is coming, so I need to make sure that when he sees my lamp, my lamp's in good shape, nice and shiny, so that when he sees the lamp, then he'll let me into the wedding banquet. You know, sometimes we, we think like that. And I think as humans, that's kind of as how we naturally think. But listen to what the Lord said to Samuel. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That is, the Lord is concerned with what's on the inside of the lamp. So I think this parable might be calling us at St. Peter's to know Jesus now by the Spirit who dwells within us, empowering us to live out our Christian vocation so that when he comes... He will know us, and we will know him. So it's not like Jesus goes away and says, okay, run things, I'm gone now. No, in the scriptures, there's always a tension. I'm going away, but I'm with you. I'm going away, but I'm sending the Spirit. I'm going away, but it's good for you, because if I wasn't going away, I wouldn't be with you always. There's that little paradoxical thing. So it's not, okay, I'm, I'm gone now, you run things and make sure the lamp is really shiny for when I get back or else. No, it's know me now so that when I come, you'll see me and I'll see you and I'll welcome you into the wedding. Where was I? <laughs> Our lamps are really quite fragile, aren't they? Fragile jars of clay that contain the precious treasure of the oil of God. Listen to, to what St. Paul says. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. The oil that lights our lamp is from God and not from us. What a comforting thought. So some of us might feel a little bit stuck in our Christian life this morning. We might feel like we're going through the motions a bit. We might feel like we're just kind of barely above water in our Christian life. We might feel like we're not growing in the Lord, not making progress in holiness, not experiencing the joy of the Lord. Perhaps we know we ought to be sharing the good news of Jesus with our neighbors. We want to publicly acknowledge Jesus in his kingdom. But if we're honest, we really don't want to bear the stigma of being a Christian. Or perhaps someone has hurt us, someone we love. Perhaps we've been hurt by the church. And we know that if we're going to heal, we need to forgive the one who hurt us from the heart. But if we're honest, part of us doesn't want to heal because there's a part of us, called the sinful nature, that doesn't want to forgive. And even in ourselves, we can't. We can't. So we're stuck. We're stuck. Or some of us might simply be struggling with a particular sin. And we've willed and we've tried, but we just can't seem to make progress. 
so we're stuck. And so the thought of Jesus returning at any moment is actually not a very comforting one to us. It's a little bit frightening. What's the remedy? I don't think our text this morning is saying to us, try harder, do better, shape up, light your lamp from your own oil. It's not saying that. I think the wise virgins give us the remedy. Before night comes, before the bridegroom arrives, go to the one who has the oil and get some now. It's free. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says it this way, your heavenly Father will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. So let's ask him. That's the remedy. So if you're struggling and you're stuck, and by the way, it's a lifelong process being a Christian. So you're going to have lots of times where you're struggling and you're stuck. But the, but the, the remedy is not, okay, I'm going to pull up my socks and try harder. No, it's to go to your heavenly Father who's going to pour out his oil upon you. But let's be clear about what we're asking for. We're not just asking to feel better. We're asking him to change us from the inside out so that over time we begin to look more like Jesus. We begin by his power when he prompts to talk about Jesus in public or begin by his power and his prompting to forgive from our hearts. Or we begin by his power and his prompting to begin slowly to overcome that sin. So if you feel stuck today, if you feel like a, an empty lamp in body, mind, or spirit, and I know the Greek word could mean torch, so don't nail me for this, but I'm just going with it. If, if you feel like your lamp is empty and there's no flame, I invite you to receive God's oil that you may know Jesus now. Then we will want him to come because he's the one who heals us. He's the one who makes us like him. So what we'll, say, we'll be desperate. Jesus, please come. Please come and make everything new. Please come. I mentioned before that the church still makes use of oil for the healing of mind, body, and spirit. And by the way, this isn't magic. We believe this because God gives us his grace through matter. What's the great example of this? God comes to us in human flesh, right? In, in a, in a, in a, as a human being that we can see and that we can touch. So when we come to him in baptism, he gives us spiritual birth through what? Water. Or he feeds us spiritually with himself through bread and wine. And he also heals us on the inside through oil. So I've asked Phil to bring our holy oils here today. You might not know that we have holy oils, but we are an Anglican church, so we have them. And I, I think Phil's going to be with me. I'm going to be on the prayer team today after communion. If you need oil in your lamp, come receive Jesus and come and see me and ask. Just ask. I want, I want to, be, to be anointed with oil for healing and tell us what it is and we'll pray for you and we'll ask the Lord to come and fill your lamp.
And we will say, as you are outwardly anointed with his holy oil, so may our Heavenly Father grant you the inward anointing of the Holy Spirit. Now to our final question. Where's the gospel in this text? I think we've already heard of it, heard a glimpse of it. The good news is that the oil is not of us, it's of God. But this parable also gives us a clear picture of the gospel. Listen to this now. Remember, go back now to the first century Jewish wedding custom. Okay? What's the first thing that the bridegroom does? He goes out from his father's house to pursue his beloved. Jesus in John chapter 16 says, I came from the father and entered the world. He leaves the father's house to pursue his beloved. Who's his beloved? Us. Us. Then what does he do? He pays the bride price. Listen to Paul's word in 1 Corinthians 6. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Or 1 Peter. You know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ. Jesus, the bridegroom, has paid the bride price for us with nothing less than his own blood, shed for the forgiveness of your sins and mine. We're reminded of this as when we sing that great modern hymn, In Christ Alone. Do you guys sing that here? You do. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. So the bridegroom goes out from his father's house. He pays the bride price. And then what? He returns to his father's house to prepare a place for his bride. Listen to Jesus' words in John chapter 14. My father's house has many rooms. In other words, you're all invited. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? That's what the bride says to his beloved. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. That's our great hope as Christians, that Jesus the bridegroom has left his father, paid the bride price, and has gone to prepare a place for us. And he's coming. He's coming back to collect us and to bring him to be where he is in the new heavens and the new earth, making all things new. So listen to John from Revelation 19. Let us rejoice and be glad. And give him the glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Then the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's you and me. We're invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, and our weekly celebration of Holy Communion is a wonderful foretaste of that great banquet. It's a little bit of heaven on earth. Let's conclude with the final words from the Bible. The spirit and the bride say come, and let the one who hears say come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen.